0: Welcome or welcome back to Modern Medieval Podcast.
1: I'm Eleonora. (laughs) And I'm Megan. And this week we are going to talk about Beowulf.
0: Yeah. Which
1: I know Ella's very excited about. She was the one who suggested that this be our subject for the week. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about Beowulf, the epic poem, the Old English one, and then the 2007 film of the same name as a kind of modern... You know, medieval air quotes interpretation, which yeah. I think was is it's interesting. It'll be really interesting because it wasn't bad, but it, I also had I have some bones to pick with it as well.
0: Yeah, I think it was an interesting experience. It wasn't quite what I imagined it to be one before I watched it, and then when I watched, it, I was like, "Oh, this same was their take." Yeah. yeah.
1: Um. So I guess just to start off with, you know, what is Beowulf? Everyone has to read it at some point in their lives. I feel if you're in the Western Hemisphere, yeah, um, because it to is. Be fair, of, to be fair, to what?
0: To be fair, this is my first like actual full read of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I read it my sophomore year of high school. Um, oh when we wow! Were doing Old English, Anglo-Saxon, but I didn't actually read it all. Mm. I don't think I read really that much. So, it's a um, epic poem written in Old English that's more than three thousand lines long. So it's quite long, but it actually was shorter than I thought, like I recall it being. So if it's 3,000 lines long, I think I read 500 to 1,000 of it, actually. Oh, yeah, fair.
0: I mean, it makes sense. I think also if you're studying it in school, it's not quite what you'd expect.
1: Well, yeah, we were supposed to read it all, but I was, what, 15 at the time, was 0% interested in any sort of old English Kind really
0: interesting poetry. that you ended up <laughs> in
1: know. like
0: medieval stuff.
1: Um, and it—it's not that hard to read, but when you're 15, if you're just kind of already eh about it, it feels a bit. Yeah. Um,
0: no, it's true. I—I've I've actually been amazed because I don't know. I mean, it's not common knowledge, but I have trouble with poetry. Um, and I found that with this one, actually, it's been really like fun and easy to read. If that yeah. makes sense.
1: Well, you read the Seamus Heaney translation. Yeah.
0: yeah. Which yeah, which makes a
1: difference. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that translation was um or was it won? wasn't, not just nominated for the Whitbread Book of the Year Award in 1999. And yeah. for those of you who don't know Seamus Heaney is a Nobel laureate in literature, he's Irish, yeah. Irish poet, phenomenal, phenomenal poet, but yeah. definitely a no, way with words.
0: Yeah, no it's it's amazing. Um he's got this preface where he like tells you his like story about Mm -hmm. how he got into translating Beowulf and the difficulties that he had and his approach to it. And it's quite interesting because it definitely, it feels very personal um, Mm -hmm. as a, an undertake an undertaking, you know, a very personal reckoning with the text and how to translate it and like getting, because he was uh, talking a lot about, because at that point, he was um, teaching at Harvard, I think. And he was like, no, I have to keep those Anglo-Saxon roots. And so I think that's quite an interesting take on, on like, there's another facet of translating, you know?
1: Definitely. Um, yeah, so I read a different version. I read yep. the Old English Poetry Project translation that's available through Rutgers. Mm-hmm. And I believe the translation is by Dr. Aaron K. Hostetter at least their names like up at the top yeah. of the page. So I'm assuming but it's interesting because at the very bottom of the page, because it's a blog, there's like a comment section and someone else was like, oh, well, I'm translating it based off the etymology of the words rather than trying to force a um, certain kind of rhyme because so Beowulf was written in an alliterative verse. Yeah. So it's not rhyming, but alliteration is like mama made me mash my M&Ms. It's that sound. And so it's written in alliterative like phrases that are then broken by a caesora, which is a pause or a break, usually a hyphen. Um, So this person was like doing mama made hyphen mash my, and then the next line kind of thing. Um, And there's been so many different translations. People can't, because we don't have much of like a source text proper way to translate it, if you will, uh, people will go etymologically. They will do direct Anglo-Saxon translations, which because it's such old English, the origins of the words are sometimes based more in conjecture and like backtracking rather than, you know, knowing the direct link like we do with, for example, Greek and Latin. But it's one of the most often translated works of old English literature, and is, yes, just considered by many people, at least, again, in the Western hemisphere, as one of the most important pieces of literature um, yeah. ever, like recorded. And it's a Germanic hero legend. Mm-hmm. And so the date of composition hasn't... It's had- unknown, because yeah. it was a
0: vernacular text, and it was thought to be, like, orally transmitted for mm-hmm. a while, so its origins are kind of iffy, which I think is actually one of its coolest things. Yeah, because a a poem's quite yeah because a poem like that is like very it's very specific in the language it uses so it's quite interesting that it would be transmitted that way and I guess there's a lot like to reinterpretation of the text and things like that it's cool
1: yeah well it's definitely in line with you know the Iliad and the Odyssey which were also oral stories that were edited and added to throughout time due to their oral nature and yeah it's not until they're actually transcribed and written down that you then go well this is a air yeah. quote definitive version yeah and so yeah 975 to 1025 mm-hmm. is kind of like an established yeah. time frame but of course that isn't like set in stone and the story itself takes place at around like 6 AD give or yeah. take yeah um which is The end of antiquity and the beginning of the medieval, early, like early, early medieval, it's in that kind of-
0: In between phase.
1: time. Yeah. So it's considered, you know, a lot of people grow up with it being known as Anglo-Saxon, but in attempts to kind of decolonize and reinterpret um, origin stories and travel, it's now just considered old English or old, old English. So, but if you think in your mind, if you grew up with like Anglo-Saxon as a time period, it is in that. It yeah, it feels very nicely there.
0: I thought it was quite interesting as well because it felt like definitely its context. You know, it's it's based in in Denmark, and yeah. it's a story that's kind of far away. One thing that I've learned is that in that time, it was actually there was quite a bilingual culture anyway which I think is interesting when you think about the origins of English. And obviously it makes sense um, that, you know, in in that time frame, everyone would be more fluid. But it's kind of, as always, like deconstructing this idea that everything's fixed in one little box of one way only, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. And part of Beowulf too is this really interesting fusion of pagan, so like Odin, Scandinavian mythology, and theology, mixed with this Christian, you know, like in the film, and we'll get to that, they say like the new Roman God, so Christian theology, and it's believed by a lot of scholars, and this is basically standard, is that it's from that um, transcription in England, you know, in around 1000, because at that time, or by that point, Christianity was the, the megalith, thing. yeah, if you will, in the, thing. <laughs> uh, the Western worlds. Yeah. So bringing that and changing this story, which regardless to um, the religious inflections is good versus evil, you know, the
0: virtuous
1: yeah. air quotes. The dichotomy yeah. became yeah. very, very clear. But it becomes very saturated in, um, you know, Christ good so Beowulf kind of seen as this potential Christ figure and then Grendel and Grendel's mother as you know descendants of Cain there's a digression in the poem about that and like like so therefore literally like sin embodied in one way or another yeah Um, which is really interesting yeah
0: because I read I mean I was listening to um a podcast by academics on um in our time and they Mm -hmm. were saying that they think that this over christianization isn't wasn't part of the story in any way and so that that was part of like the rewriting of it
1: yeah yeah exactly um so yeah uh starting off so yeah denmark think of hamlet you know that area then we've got sweden and they also have like finland so those uh scandinavian finger countries and there have been, you know, archaeological excavations in regard to trying to find the historic aspects of this. Because the epic, like most epics, is a mixture of mythology, um, lore, and then actual like historic tidbits here and there. And that's part of Beowulf's continuing kind of charm or spell is that there are historic bits of yeah, fiction, legend, and history. So although Beowulf himself is never mentioned in any other early English manuscripts, many of the other figures named in Beowulf appear in Scandinavian mm. uh, sources of the time. So like, and apologies if I get the pronunciations wrong.
0: I won't like, know, so.
1: halfdane <laughs> <laughs> Hrothgar, Holga, Hrothulf, Edgils and Ólfr, uh, but then also the clans that are mentioned throughout the, the poem. So the Skildings, the Skillthings, and the Wolfings, and then also just certain events mentioned in it as well. So the battle between uh, Edgils and Onela, and so that's just I think fascinating, and it makes me understand much more why people like love this poem and get so invested in it. Um, so for example, Ella was so patient with me because I was reading half the poem last night and then I read the other half this morning. And there's a particular phrase, it's fa-floor. So F-A-H and then F-L-O-R in the old English, but the way we spell floor now, that when I was doing my undergraduate honors dissertation at UC Berkeley, the cohort I was in, my friend um, Olivia Graves did her undergraduate dissertation on Beowulf and its historic archaeological and literary kind of fusions on this phrase. So I'm on her little blurb page for the, you know, alumni of the fellowship we were all in. And so I'm just going to read it just briefly. It's not very long since I couldn't find the word and explain why I think it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know you. I read it too. I was in yeah. bed and I would, and i kind well, of mental mapped where it was yeah and- but but hopefully
0: like our listeners might read it now and they might this might yeah. be the mission. you might get something really special from us if you find it from megan <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna
1: find it the moment we finish it's just like up here on the page despite all my oh. command f searching um, oh, bless you. <laughs> so yeah olivia's project was this is the title at least on the website decoding the fall floor archaeological discovery and the demystification of a lost metaphor in Beowulf. And so her project, this is the blurb she had, the dating and provenance of the old English epic Beowulf have been topics of wide scholarly debate for the past 200 years. Combining literary and archaeological research techniques constitutes one way of approaching this inquiry. Based on close readings, there is some evidence to suggest that the poet refers to a tessellated mosaic Floor left over from Roman Britain and one of the most compelling scenes. If shown to be plausible, this notion could move the dating of Beowulf back closer to the Roman era. And then as part of her project, Olivia traveled to Oxford because there was an archaeological historian doing an excavation. Um, And Olivia participated in that excavation. To investigate this mosaic, piece of mosaic floor that was discovered, as well as using like the Bodleian, because big library, Beowulf, Old English, just, you know, the, yeah, the center hub. Um, but so f- the reason why this is interesting is because the word fa has multiple meanings. So mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, a lot of translators translate the word fa as like blood, blood stained you know, so this deep red. But Olivia was arguing that fa could also mean just um, a deep co- red color. So like a burgundy or something, you know, and the uh, tessellated, tessellated floor that was discovered in the excavation was this color. And as we were just saying, you know, there's inspiration in addition by the early English um, scribe who was writing this down. And so Olivia was arguing, well, maybe they were taking some of their surroundings that they had seen to help create and inspire the way that Herat, you know, the Great Hall in Beowulf, appeared. Um, I don't really remember her conclusions and everything, but I just thought that was so interesting because also um, I know that you're very aware of this, Elo, but archaeology department at Sheffield was just... Yeah. shut down and I just feel like this is one of those examples of archaeology is not just science it's also something that is related to literature and the humanities and also just the significance of the humanities and a kind of liberal arts education fusing two seemingly unconnected fields together.
0: Um, yeah no it's really interesting a lot of my uncle's and aunt cause co- um colleagues are very it's very very multi sector mm-hmm. as a department where it really makes a huge difference to understanding not only our past but also our, our present so right. it's a really big shame
1: <laughs> I completely agree so yeah I'm not trying to get political because there that definitely could open a whole can of worms of politics that we can approach in another episode I would love to dive yeah. into that but yeah, yeah just It's also just fascinating to me how this little two-word phrase could potentially be a key to help unlock this centuries-long debate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there have been many, many, many renditions and versions of Beowulf. Um, You know, plays, graphic novels, books, films, computer games. And so some of the more notable recent versions are the films The 13th Warrior, which came out in 1999, which was adapted from the novel Eaters of the Dead by Michael Crichton, so author of Jurassic Park, Uh, the Icelandic-Canadian co-production Beowulf and Grendel, which came out in 2005, and then the 2007 version, Beowulf, that Ello and I both watched. Um, Um,
0: Not what I really expected, to be honest.
1: Like, so I was a bit why shocked. <laughs> why don't we? Uh, why don't we do first impressions? Elo, you go first. Okay, so uh, bear in mind, like we discussed,
0: that we we're going to watch like Baywatch the film, and like I'd forgotten which one we were watching. So I was like, surely, like knowing Megan, it'll probably be like the most recent version. So I went for the most recent version, and I was looking at it on like different streaming platforms to figure out how to how to watch it. And I saw like all the other ones. I was like, oh, this sounds quite interesting. Blah blah blah. Get onto it. It was like this kind of like cartoonish version. I was just so confused. I was like, wait, is this animated? Is this not? And mm-hmm. then like the whole like special effects to me, it, like I it understood the meaning. I think it had like, I feel like this film had like facets of meaning that were kind of constructed around it. Because I thought that like, this obviously appeals to like 14 year old boys, um, yeah. which, which, you know, fine. But then I thought maybe like they're trying to mysticize it, mysticize the story, and create like another layer of meaning um but my first impression was that it was like it looked a bit like a Marvel film which which was fine but like also wasn't really what I was expecting and then yeah like I thought that the story was fluid but like it lacked a bit of the poetics if that makes sense um and overall I enjoyed it
1: but like I wouldn't watch it again if that makes sense what about you so I went in knowing that it was this weird CGI animated style I didn't know so if you've ever seen the polar express it's the exact same style but apparently this one used like 130 cameras whereas polar express did like 30 cameras so that's why it's a bit more uncanny looking rather than oil pastelli in polar express Mm -hmm so there are two buzzwords i can say that were my impressions of this shrek and video oh, yeah. games yeah yes 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 so yeah, that's true. shrek yeah, that's true. because some of the there are some scenes where our characters like anthony hopkins who plays hrothgar it it is like so close to looking unanimated but then there are others, especially young um uh, Robin Wright. So the the queen, uh Welf, wealth, Welfling, Welflung, Welfling, Weltho, Welfo, where I was like, she just looks kind of like Fiona and Shrek, or like how they yeah. hadn't really figured out how to animate realistic looking humans yet. So it was kind of in between because they were also aging her down. So That for me was something that uh, added a really interesting flavor. Um, Sometimes it was comedic, sometimes it was distracting. And then video games, because, you know, of, of course, animation for video games has just gotten more and more advanced and whatnot, but there were just a lot of shots that reminded me of, you know, in video games, like, which I don't play that much, but I've watched people play them and everything we have like an intro story section or like an in, in between, you know, like you unlock the chest and something happens and then you proceed where there are shots where you're like kind of zooming up or just some of the angles and the way that it moved around made me think of, yeah, playing video games like Zelda or um, some, of the more, like, action-packed games. I haven't really played many of those. I'm a bit more nerdy in the style. Obviously, I'm not talking about, like, Super Mario or something. Oh, no, I'm talking no, more, like, mean? The Witcher kind of style. Um, Which I thought was an interesting choice because it kind of goes with, like, what you're saying, L.O., where it adds a different dynamic. It made mm-hmm. me kind of, like, oh, is this, like, a hero... Because it is a hero epic. So, like, that playing out... Um, so that, and then, yeah, storyline-wise, let's let's dive into the storyline. Quickly, for those of you who don't know, poem is broken into three parts.
0: Yeah, or two, depending on who yeah, decides. Depending.
1: Yeah, depending. So, you know, there's like an introduction that kind of just talks about Hrothgar, what Hira is, and everything. Then we are introduced to uh, this character named Grendel, who mm-hmm. is given yeah. lots of uh, horrible names. And I have lots of thoughts on Grendel, both the poem and this interpretation, but he's kind of yeah. considered like abject and the night walker and shadow person comes and is just wreaks havoc on Hirat yeah. because he cannot stand the sound of joy. And that's, yeah. um, so killing all these people, it's horrible. It happens for like 12 winters or something. So like years, this is going on. Um, so Hrothgar goes, I need somebody to, to kill this guy or this creature. People try keep dying. Enter Beowulf coming yeah. from, uh is it the like far from far away? Yeah. From one yeah. of the Scandinavian countries down into Denmark. So then we have the battle of Grendel where mm-hmm. Beowulf is like, I will fight him like an equal. So no swords or anything like that in the film depicted as naked. Interesting choice. We can get back mm-hmm. to that. Um, <laughs> Definitely for
0: the mothers going with the children. I thought. Oh yeah, it
1: must have been such a joy. <laughs> um, and so basically, Beowulf battles Grendel. You know, swords can't bite him. That's how it's like described in the poem. Ends up ripping off Grendel's arm, which becomes a mortal wound. Grendel scurries away to his subterranean swamp lake lair, which is where he lives with his mother. Yeah, and Grendel's mother has no name. First, just we can do. Get into that, too. But she has no name. She is just known as Grendel's mother. The mother, the mother or the swamp hag.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, she comes the night after Grendel's death and slaughters the everyone else, everyone else in the Great Hall. <laughs> you know, except for Beowulf and some of his people and stuff. So Beowulf and his soldiers track Grendel's mother to her lair which you have to like dive underwater and then it's like a subterranean cave. So Beowulf's like, stay here, I shall go. Goes under the water, battles Beowulf's, or I'm sorry, battles Grendel's mother. She has the upper hand at first, pins him down and tries to stab him, but his armor protects him. Um, And then he finds this giant's sword or something like that. And stabs her in the throat and, like, beheads her. So then he mm. wins. And Beowulf, not having enough, sees the the body, the corpse of Grendel, goes over and just, like, hacks him to pieces and chops the head off and takes that with him. You know, and is like, huzzah, here I am. <laughs> um, so then he's like, woo, Beowulf, yay, all the things. And then the last battle, if you will, the last kind of, like, s- s- section – that is 50 years later and it's an old Beowulf someone steals a cup so in the epic Beowulf goes back to his home land um um, yeah his home place whereas in the film he stays yeah uh, uh here at so interesting choice but that's also because of where they go narrative influence wise Someone steals a gold cup from a dragon, which, as we all know, dragons like shiny things. And despite how much they have, they just know when you take even a coin. And dragon comes, wreaks havoc, as dragons do. Fael's like, I'm going to go battle the dragon. All his people leave him, except for Wiglaf. two very different characters in epic and film. Beowulf defeats the dragon, but has a mortal wound, dies a hero's death. And then, you know, the very end of the epic is like an ode to great heroes. And then it's over. Yeah, <laughs> And you've read 3,100 lines of epic yeah. poetry.
0: Yeah. But the film is quite different, right? Like the storyline is completely distorted.
1: Yeah. So in the storyline, so first of all, just an interesting tidbit is that I don't know if you knew this, Elo, but the screenplay of Beowulf is written by Neil Gaiman, the oh, British like fantasy author, Sandman. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. Neil Gaiman. No, I did not know that. American Gods, uh, Good Omens with Terry Pratchett. So, like, definitely somebody that um, has his contemporary grip or modern grip in legendary tales, epics. Um, So Neil Gaiman and Roger Avery, um, they wrote this and it's directed by Robert Zemeckis, who did direct um, The Polar Express, but also like Back to the Future. So connections with Crispin Glover and all of that. But so Gaiman and Avery decided to take a bit of their own interpretive leap. And in the film, um, Grendel happens to be Hrothgar's son, so Hrothgar slept with Grendel's mother. Which, for those of you who are wondering, yes, that's Angelina Jolie. Oh, that uh, was Angelina Jolie. Yeah. I'm not sure why I didn't recognize her. I was like, this is familiar. Who is <laughs> um, yes, so Angelina Jolie. Um, so unlike in the epic where Grendel's mother is very monstrous she lacks a lot of the humanity that grendel has though because she seeks vengeance on her son's death that's considered a human emotion so she's not completely devoid um but yeah in the film she's this like almost like a siren sexual magical uh
0: temptress yeah
1: so in the film you know well but we see scenes of her in her full form like in reflections where we see grendel coming back to his mother where she kind of looks I mean she's like scaly and golden and has octopus tentacles and um like these golden talon bird hands <laughs> um but she can transform herself into angelina jolie just bedecked in gold with a magical uh, tail ponytail that like wriggles around. Um, And so she's able to bring fortune to those that she chooses to sleep with. So one assumes that Hrothgar was such a successful warrior because he made a deal with Rendell's mother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when Beowulf goes to battle her um. He has the drinking horn, you know, that's very symbolic in the film. It's golden. It, like, illuminates the way. It's a dragon with a ruby in the throat, which we'll get to that because that ends up being important. And she, like, is able to completely melt the um, sword that Beowulf has to to kill her, but not after, like, phallically stroking it and, like, (laughs) just being very seductive and bizarre.
0: yeah <laughs> yeah i'm not really sure how i felt about any of this you on know, this so i was like yeah. mm,
1: this is, this is yeah. appealing
0: to some sort of teenage fantasy which is
1: young men in general i like as a woman yeah. i was kind of like okay um this again <laughs> yeah so she makes a deal with beowulf in exchange for that cup because she is like a dragon and she hoards goods especially gold like her entire cavern is mosaiced with it and she says if you give me this I will give you what you desire which is the kingdom or whatever of herot and uh, Herot's wife what, uh, Wealth Hill which they add that whole dynamic and we'll get to that in a moment too um so kind of beowulf... they like and like had a bit of an oedipus
0: undertone to it now
1: yeah i and think they were making it this in a weird way epic in that yeah. regard so yeah. yeah beowulf does not kill her and that bites him in the ass because then he you know he gets what he wants so frothgar knows he discovers that beowulf did not kill grendel's mother yeah we should call her gemma because yeah. that's G-M. Let's give her a name. Yeah. Gemma. I think that's just, she deserves it. Really. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> so, Rothgar discovers that Beowulf did not kill Gemma. And basically, after that, he just, like, commits suicide and jumps off at the window. Right? That's what happens. Or he, like, stabs himself and falls out the window. Ergo, Beowulf inherits Hirot. He gets Wealthio, uh, who he's, like... The night before, when he, before he killed Grendel was like slowly taking off his chain mail in front of her and like, like what you see, but you can't have it. Oh, it so absurd. Cause that, so that sexual tension, 0% exists in the episode. No,
0: no, it doesn't.
1: Well, well, does have words and like, she does speak and sing in the poem, but she's not as much of a figure as she is in the film. So yeah. like. Cool for giving her some more vocality and presence. Not cool that she's just a romantic interest. You know, um, that sucks. But yeah, so basically, in selling his soul to Gemma, Beowulf, 50 years later, has his like younger version of himself, like the virtuous or good version of himself, as like his kind of like son, but yep. not... This what is it like? Sins of the fathers or something like that. Um, who turns in becomes the dragon, and so the gold piece that's stolen in the film is the drinking horn with the dragon, by uh, John Malkovich's uh, slave boy, whatever he calls him, and that breaks the the spell. It's not it wasn't allowed to like leave Gemma, and so. Sunny boy Beowulf is just wreaking havoc. Beowulf goes to see Gemma. She's like just floating in gold. And she's like, this is what you asked for. This is what you get. And then dragon battle fight. And Beowulf is like, I must, I must battle my sins and myself. I have lost myself or whatever it is. Kills the dragon by, I thought this was pretty cool. So the dragon's, like, heart and flame source is in its throat. Mm. And it was, like, this glowing red orb, hence the... Um...
0: I can see, like, now, I actually see more of the strike stuff that you were talking about. It's really, <laughs> really, really, really close, actually.
1: Um, but, yeah, like, see, like, like the, the ruby and the drinking goblets. And then Beowulf's like, aha, that's how I defeat the dragon. I bet it was cool when he slit that open and all the, like, magma flames are, like, pouring out of the dragon's throat. Before he's able to cut it open again, like, further and see that that's where the heart is. I thought mm. that was interesting. Like, a dragon's heart, not in its chest, but in its throat. I don't know. I was very compelled by that. Everything else mm. I thought was dumb. And this just got to, like, absurd action film points for me at this point. Yeah. He's, like, hanging on to a knife that he stabbed in the dragon's back and, like, flying around and going through the ocean. And I was like, I don't care. No,
0: yeah, um, no. It was a bit like that, wasn't it? it, was it.
1: yeah. It, yeah, it so like action stuff I also, I, did you have a hard time watching some of like the Grendel scenes because the flames were like flickering and it was strobe lighty and dark but then bright blue is it just me? Yeah,
0: no, I mean I tend to have trouble with like these kinds of scenes because I think they're just kind of overwhelming I think it bodes well if you're in a cinema because it, it overwhelms yeah. you in that way but like if you're watching it from home yeah, I thought I thought those kinds of scenes were a bit a bit beyond beside the point
1: <laughs> so, yeah they felt gratuitous like violently gratuitous and I know that sounds yeah. ironic coming from me who loves horror films but in a lot of like, it the thing is is like in horror films that is the point is yeah. like people being slashed and hashed and all the crazy things and sometimes the more absurd it is the more fun it is mm. whereas in action films once three or four guys are like thrown across a room and spiked and it just kind of keeps happening, you're like, all right, when 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 does it stop? Yeah. You're like, okay, I get it. Um so yeah, in the battle with Grendel, Beowulf's like, I will fight him nude. So there was a lot of like, you know, covering up of the male genitalia with like clever obstacles and of course beowulf is like ripped 1% body fat if that um if, uh, and it just i just didn't i didn't find it funny i was like ugh, i just i don't care um but was interesting and i don't know if you how you felt about this Elo, but grendel is very um grendel's not like a complete monster in the film grendel is made to be a slightly sympathetic-y kind of figure, um, where the film they make it, the reason why he can't handle the sound of joy or the sounds of the hall that echo kind of through the land and then... So they ripple through the land and then echo in their, like, uh, Grendel and Gemma's home is because he has this kind of giant eardrum in one of his ears, and it, like, he can't handle the sound. So... It's yeah, I'm, I'm a biological a anomaly. Yeah. yeah. um, And then, of course, in the battle, Beowulf sees that and is, like, screaming in his ear and, like, jabbing it. And Grendel's just in pain. Yeah. And, yeah, I think that it's one of those things where Grendel was – he was just an outsider and, like, an in-between. And, yeah, it's just really interesting because you get a bit of that in the poem, too, this kind of – ambiguous definitely a monster but there for me what was really interesting in the poem and and this is just because of the research I'm currently working on in my PhD is the fact that Grendel was said to have a soul Mm. and talking about his soul and how much that comes up in the battle and him when he's wounded because um, demons and monsters are understood to not have souls most of the time in medieval theology it depends so there are things like aristotelian uh, hylomorphism, which is the idea that plants animals and humans have souls so plants have the most basic soul animals have plant souls and animating souls and then humans have those two plus a rational soul yeah but only humans have souls that can ascend to perpetuity to immortality and eternity. But anyways, so I just thought that was really interesting in the poem though that um Grendel's soul was mentioned so much and um also then in the film the way that they I don't know how I thought Grendel was going to look but he, in the film he's very um cadaverous. He, yeah, I mean it just looked like, like zombie-ish. Yeah. I thought like there was quite a lot
0: of it that just was very cinematic Mm. but like lacked story I feel like there were ways that they could have made that storyline I also didn't like the fact that to be honest one thing that really annoyed me was that Mm. like Gemma was a monster and then she was naked and I was just like why yeah why do we need to have that in the in the film
1: yeah the film was really into um a lot of like the women, the maids had like really, really low cut dresses with huge boobs, and um, yeah, Gemma is naked but coated in gold, and then of course Angelina Jolie, who's fucking hot. Like I get yes, it, she is. but you also don't need her to be naked to be turned on.
0: Like, no, exactly. You don't need to have her perky boobs like staring at you. Yeah. You.
1: Um. And yeah, just like it, the film fell a lot into the trope of oh this is medieval this is early English you know late antiquity the men are brutes the men are gonna laugh about women and make sex jokes and you know hyper masculinity and yeah. there was just so much of that and like I felt Beowulf as even old Beowulf and I know part of it's because he like lost his soul or whatever to Gemma but he got this woman he loves well though right in the film but then he's still sleeping with maidens on the side and stuff. And it was just, I don't know, just lots of... The, the only character I truly like liked aside from Wildfell, even though I was upset by the fact that she fell for Beowulf and not necessary, just like having sex in the dig, but um, mm-hmm. is uh, Wigloff, who is Beowulf's companion in the film, played by um, a guy that plays Mad-Eye Moody. Um, can't recall his name, something Gleason. Not Dominic Gleason, because that's his son. Do 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 looking it up really quick, like Brendan Gleason. Uh who, you know, becomes king post Beowulf's death after the dragon. Whereas in the epic, he's just a very young hero. Um yeah. and Wiglaf in like the uh Anglo-Saxon Old English means something like. Return of valor or maintenance of valor. It's a name that has like symbolic meaning, just like Beowulf is called what's a, kin- a canning, a canning. It's a combination of words, but also so it's um, Beowulf or Beowulf, which means bear. So it's mm. like that's why Beowulf has the bear imprint on him and stuff yeah. like that is because of that. Yeah, and then just like the ending where. Gemma reappears on Beowulf's funeral pyre and is like floating and her tits are like stroking <laughs> his chest and is like, mmm. And then it flames and then she like stares at uh, Wolf Flag, Wolf Flag, and it's like they just make long eye contact and I just wish he would have walked away. I would have felt so much more satisfied if Wigloff would have just walked away. Yeah it just kind of freezes and he turns golden. So I'm assuming that like it oh it fades into this golden color. So does that mean that he fell for it? Because I think so. gold is her color.
0: Yeah oh, I and think so. that
1: just tracked for me in my brain. Oh cool. Cool 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 cool. Um <laughs> so yeah it's just interesting I guess as you said in the very beginning Ello that the way that they told the story in this is not just a series of monstrous battles. It's an underlying story of, like, man's flaws. Yeah. But presented in a way where it's masked by hyper-masculinity, sexy bodies, violence, and Shrek slash video game graphics.
0: Yeah, because the way I kind of saw it was that, like, Beowulf was not a perfect man and mm-hmm. therefore I thought like there was an undertone was like when he gets older where he looks a bit embarrassed of kind of like if if he were living a lie if that makes sense yes and you know as you were saying yourself like there's a lot of sin and he's still like very un- imperfect and I kind of saw him sleeping around as like a symptom of like this lie that he's kind of living um and then, you know, there's this very, like, simplistic, oh, but my true love is my wife, who you've ignored for the whole thing.
1: Yeah, you won her and then tossed her aside.
0: Yeah, and uh, just overall, like, I thought that the point wasn't well made. Like, you know, because everything else is too distracting. Exactly. to I think be it, a well-made point.
1: Yeah, I think it was too buried. I appreciated that attempt. Yeah. Um, and you have, like, the scene where he and baby Beowulf soul dragon gold self, he and he's like looking at his own reflection. And they yeah. like reach their hands out to one another. And I was like, this too entire late. felt Yeah, it's like too late. Too late. Been- now you do something that is like very stereotypically meaningful after yeah. a five minute dragon battle. I don't
0: <laughs> Yeah, I guess it I guess they were trying to stay like in the moral side of things. Well I think it was just too late.
1: I didn't hate it. I just one last thing for me that was really frustrating was... So you have this actor, Anthony Hopkins, who's phenomenal. And they just mm. butcher Krothgar, the character, and make him this, like, feeble, drunk old man. Whereas in the poem, he's, like, a very well-respected, wise king
0: and yeah. figure
1: and um, figure. I mean, he's wise in the film, but, you know, he's also, like, bumbling around where you don't get that in the poem. And yeah.
0: And also, I thought there was quite a lot of like weird tension between him and the then wife, uh, Beowulf's wife.
1: It's like, yeah, she's too young and like.
0: She doesn't want to bear his children. And it's a bit so weird.
1: Yeah, they say it's because she he told her that he slept with Gemma and everything. But also, they make things about, oh, he's too old to get it up. So, I, I, yeah, I just, I was disappointed that. They made that character kind of weak and significantly more flawed. I think they're trying to make it so Beowulf stood out more, but I think it it would have been more of a testament to Beowulf had Hrothgar been the character he was in the epic. Agreed. And Anthony Hopkins can obviously do that because he's. Phen- I mean, he was still great in his the character. He was, but I was like, ah.
0: Yeah, it 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 kind of. Going back to our very first episode, it's kind of taking the story as a pretext and then doing whatever you want with it and like running with X, Y, and
1: Z. Yeah. Um, But despite all its flaws, like,
0: I enjoyed
1: it. it. I've definitely watched worse things. I just felt let down more than anything. And it was just really fascinating because it came out in 2007. And yeah. now, and just how I felt like some of the aspects I would hope wouldn't fly, like the hyper-masculinity and eroticization of the women to the extent that it was. But I don't know, because they're like, oh, well, it's an old epic, therefore we can do this. And I just, as we've mentioned throughout many, many of our episodes, let's stop doing that. Because it's not always true it's and it's a not- disservice to... yeah
0: because then i think Very. if if like a young reader would go to try and read the the epic say if like that was the mm-hmm. standpoint from which you start reading it i think you'd be really really let down and you might especially if you're young you might just be like nah yeah
1: nah, shit where's all the sex man <laughs>
0: yeah exactly where's all the boobs
1: Yeah, I want boobs. I don't want these long story digressions about other battles that happen that have nothing to do with the story. Or, um, you know, so Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien was very inspired by this. He wrote an article about translating Beowulf. It's fascinating. Um, But like Middle Earth, I think this is where he got the term Middle Earth from. I don't know, maybe other early English texts have this. But there is a lot of the uh, digressions and, like, I am son of this, friend of this, which, if you have ever read Lord of the Rings, is definitely something you're familiar with. I mean, that's much more extreme. But my end note is read the poem. It is quite a delight. Um, Just break it up in bits. It's actually much more accessible than I remembered it being, like reading-wise.
0: No, Agreed. Shoe's Heaney's is, like, it's amazing. I don't, like, I don't like poetry. I don't like poetry, but like, <laughs> I would recommend that.
1: So, yeah, check out Seamus Heaney's, you know, there's free versions online, there's narrations on YouTube. And then if you want to watch the film, do, do and you can, you know, come to your own conclusions.
0: But definitely don't watch the film first. This is yeah. definitely one of those where you will miss the beauty of the text if you yes. watch the film first.
1: Most definitely. So... Any other final thoughts, Elo or? No, but I'm really glad we did this. <laughs> Me too. So why don't you tell us where people can find us?
0: So if you've enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more, we are on most platforms. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, um, YouTube. You can find us on Audible. You can find us on Amazon. Just type Modern Medieval Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, which we'd always really appreciate, we are on social media. We've got Instagram. Our handle is podcast.modern.medieval we've got a facebook group um, and a facebook page called modern medieval podcast we also have an email which is modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com
1: and then and finally the twitter which you can find us under the handle at medieval underscore modern so yeah feel free to reach out to us in any one of our socials or our email as always our intro and outro music Is by the musician Trothgard, who is my friend Joe Burton. You can find him on Bandcamp if you type in Trothgard, T R O T H G A R D. And yeah, this was wonderful. I'm glad we did it. Um, Until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ella. And this is Modern Medieval, the podcast.